Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 53. We'll begin with a brief summation of the book of Joshua, chapters 8 through 11, and follow with a consideration of total war. With a victory of Jericho under their belts and a miserable failure at Ai, the Jews need another win. So Yehoshua orders a rematch with the city-state of Ai. He musters 30,000 men and instructs a portion of them to lay in wait at night And when the forces of Ai head out for battle against Israel's main army, those laying in wait should attack and sack the city. The plan goes off perfectly. The king of Ai, seeing the main force readying for war, sends out every man who can hold a weapon to attack it. And that force, the Jews that is, quickly retreat to further draw the men of Ai away from their city. Yoshua then gives the signal, and the secondary force attacks. When Yoshua sees the smoke rise from the burning city, he orders his fleeing forces to turn and fight. By this time, the Jewish soldiers who set the city on fire are heading out to meet and attack the men of Ai from the rear. What ensues is a wholesale slaughter, and when the battle ends, according to the verse 25 in chapter 8, 12,000 men and women lay dead, and Yehoshua then proceeds to have the city raised down to its foundation and the king impaled on a tree for all to see. Well, how long do I have to look? As long as it pleases me. Then, Yehoshua has an altar built on the mountain of blessing, Mount Eval, and he inscribes Moshe's law on the standing stones there and divides the people according to Moshe's split from Deuteronomy and reads Torat Moshe, or the instructions of Moshe aloud to the people. Word of the Jews' hitting streak spreads quickly, and the kings of various city-states west of the Jordan River are considering their options. One such city-state, Giv'on, adopts a more crafty approach. They send emissaries to Yoshua to sue for peace, but knowing that no indigenous nation will be spared, they masquerade as foreigners. When Yoshua realizes he made a pact with locals, he says, fine, we'll honor the deal, but y'all will fetch our water and chop our wood for all time. When Adoni Tzedek, the king of Jerusalem, hears about the sack of Ai and the deal cut by the Gibeonites, he realizes that the Jews now have a solid hold on Canaan, and that hold must be loosened. So he galvanizes the kings of four neighboring cities to attack Givon. The Givonites dispatch a distress call to Yoshua at Gilgal, and he responds with force. The army of the five kings scatter, and the Jews pursue. And at this point, the skies open up, and hailstones rain down on the Canaanites, killing more on the road than on the battlefield. Yoshua then declares, O sun in Givon halt, and the moon in Ayalon Valley, which did. which denied the kings any cover of darkness as the Jews decimated the remnant of the Canaanite armies. The five kings, however, themselves managed to escape to a cave at Machedah where they were caught and brought to Yoshua, who had them ritually shamed, killed by his hand, then impaled. Yoshua goes on to conquer what we would call the hill country of Judea and Samaria and the northern Negev, that is, killing all the living things, impaling the kings, setting aside the valuables for God, then sacking the cities before returning to Gilgal. Chapter 11 recounts Yoshua's northern campaign into what we would call the Galilee, where he faces potentates armed with chariots. But once he strikes and defeats the king of Chazor, the resistance from neighboring weaker kings withers. By the end of the chapter, short of a few cities in the coast, all of Canaan falls to Yoshua's forces, and with the defeat of the Anakim, those pesky giants that freaked out the spies in the days of Moshe, quote, the land had rest from war. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration.
I want to talk this episode about total war. Total war, simply defined, is when we and everything we have fights you and everything you have. And I say total war because, in essence, the cherem, or ban, requires that all living things, men, women, children, and livestock, are to be put to the sword. There are no non-combatants in the conflict. At least that's what Yoshua commands when his men go off to fight. We get some indication about the general sentiment of the officer corps when Yehoshua prods his officers to stand on the necks of the defeated kings. He tells them, come on, what's the matter? Don't be afraid. Man up! This is what God will do to all of our enemies. So they step forward and ritually shame these kings by placing their feet on the kings' necks. And then Yehoshua draws his sword and murders them. Then he has the kings impaled on trees until the evening and their corpses unceremoniously thrown into a cave where the kings had sought refuge earlier during the battle. Come on, who wouldn't have stomach for this kind of mayhem? In a sense, one could say that total war goes in and out of fashion. Sometimes armies attack everything that moves, and sometimes it's just army versus army in a field somewhere. If you look back at the top ten battles in history, and compiling such a list has engaged scholars, historians, and enthusiasts in a seemingly endless debate. And I say battles, not wars, because I want to look at what goes on in a specific engagement. And besides, battles determine the course of the war and the winners, blah, blah, blah. Look, I don't want to bog down the point too much that I'm trying to make here. So let's just look at a couple of lists and their top threes. This trio of battles comes to us compliments of Michael Lee Lanning, a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army. And I'll put a link to the complete list at the show pages as well as at thenextjew.com. Number three, Stalingrad. Number two, Hastings. And number one, Yorktown. Now, similar Google searches yielded other battles like the Battle of Gettysburg, the Normandy Invasion, Waterloo, Gagamel. But what's interesting about these bloody engagements is that they are a healthy mix of strictly battlefield battles like Gettysburg, Thermopylae, Normandy, Hastings, and total war-type struggles at Stalingrad and the Battle of Britain where belligerents attacked civilians with as much vigor as they did soldiers. Epic sieges like the German siege of Stalingrad or the or Grant siege at Vicksburg, Mississippi during the American Civil War or the Turkish siege of Vienna, they involved all the people living in those cities. Civilians, women, children, the elderly, they suffered as much as the city's armed defenders from bombardment, fire, and starvation. For example, German airplanes dropped incendiary and explosive bombs during their assault on Stalingrad, starting fires that killed more than 40,000 of the city's 600,000 residents. By the end of the battle and the Russian victory, nearly half a million soldiers and civilians died in defense of Stalingrad, and almost all of its homes, factories, and other buildings were destroyed. At Vicksburg, Union gunboats fired about 22,000 shells into the town, leveling most of the buildings. Citizens were forced into caves they dug into the city's yellow clay hills. As the siege wore on, fewer and fewer horses, mules, and dogs were seen wandering about the streets, and folks resorted to eating shoe leather. But surprisingly, only about a dozen civilians were actually killed in the fighting. Now here's the thing. If you take Clauschwitz's dictum to heart and consider war simply as politique by other means, but a much bloodier other means, then clearly you want to win. You don't play the war card in your game of politique intending to lose the war, but to win in some other way. Unless... Here's the funniest war ever waged. The war that had to be lost to be won. <laughs> Thing. The United States and the Grand Duchy of Fenwick are at war, and it takes the FBI to find out about it. 
The United States invaded by the smallest country in the world. Hey, see that big building? But generally, losing could mean death for your civilization. So fight to win. Fight as if nothing else in the world mattered as much as winning. Fight no holds barred. Let's be clear. I'm not talking about using weapons that would assure mutual destruction. I'm talking about deploying weapons and tactics that will utterly debilitate the enemy and bring them to heel while inflicting little to no damage on your side. Like the Germans' relentless bombing of London, or the Allied retaliatory firebombing of Dresden, or the Americans dropping two atomic bombs in Japan. Land your blows as quickly and as savagely as possible, win, then go home to parades. But surely, you say, aren't there rules about these things, conventions or whatnot, that prohibit targeting civilians in a war? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Rules denote civility. War, by definition, is uncivilized. It's barbaric. It's savage. It's murder. Should there be rules governing that kind of behavior? So, in a sense, I agree with Arnal Amalric, who, when asked by a crusader how to distinguish the Cathars from the Catholics, said, Caedite eos. Novit enim dominus que sunt eius, which means, kill them all, for the Lord knoweth them that are his. If you're going to let slip the dogs of war, then killing the enemy should be done in the best, organized, most efficient way possible to ensure the quickest victory. Because if the war ends as quickly as possible, your side suffers less, which is the job of every government, isn't it? To guarantee the not suffering of its citizens? If there's any morality to war and warring, that, one might say, is it. Except that people, it seems, are not natural-born killers. Don't you remember when you were little? How you and Bill Harper did, uh, bring a wire They need to be spurred into murderous action by taking young men and feeding them a diet of propaganda whereby the enemy is utterly dehumanized and Gott mit uns, God is with us. So here's your weapon, go yonder and kill, for God and country, kill. And what usually results is a torrent of kill frenzy that swallows up, as the previous century demonstrated, millions. And then after the killing ends, or in some cases, while the killing is taking place, a few lone voices, like Aristophanes, Stephen Crane, Eric Maria Remarque, Ernest Hemingway, Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut, Norman Mailer, Gunter Grass. They begin to tell another story, one that goes against the grain, that shows a different side of war, one that is ugly and bloody and full of pain and suffering. And you flinch. When presented with these images, the human instinct is not to say, please, sir, can I have some more, but to look away. There's no beauty when poppies blow between the crosses row on row. Yoshua's march across Canaan is, is as catastrophic as Sherman's across Georgia. But unlike Yehoshua's campaign, we know more precisely what Sherman commanded and thought and felt as he burned and looted his way across the Confederacy. Here's an excerpt from Sherman's Special Field Order 120, November 9th, 1864. Item 4. The army will forage liberally on the country during the march. To this end, each brigade commander will organize a good and sufficient foraging party under the command of one or more discreet officers, who will gather near the route traveled, corn or forage of any kind, meat of any kind, vegetables, cornmeal, or whatever is needed by the command, aiming at all times to keep in the wagons at least ten days' provisions for the command and three days' forage. Soldiers must not enter the dwellings of the inhabitants or commit any trespass, but during a halt or a camp, they may be permitted to gather turnips, apples, and other vegetables, and to drive in stock of their camp. Two regular foraging parties must be instructed the gathering of provisions and forage at any distance from the road traveled. 5. 
Two Army Corps commanders alone is entrusted the power to destroy mills, houses, cotton gins, etc., and for them this general principle is laid down. In districts and neighborhoods where the army is unmolested, no destruction of such property should be permitted. But should guerrillas or bushwhackers molest our march, or should the inhabitants burn bridges, obstruct roads, or otherwise manifest local hostility, then army commanders should order and enforce a devastation more or less relentless according to the measure of such hostility. Well, this sounds like a modified cherem to me. And here's the quote from chapter 21 of Sherman's memoir. We rode out of Atlanta by the Decatur Road, filled by the marching troops and wagons of the 14th Corps. And reaching the hill just outside of the old rebel works, we naturally paused to look back upon the scenes of our past battles. We stood upon the very ground whereon was fought the bloody battle of July 22nd and could see the copse of wood where the McPherson fell. Behind us lay Atlanta, smoldering and in ruins, the black smoke rising high in air and hanging like a pall over the ruined city. Away off in the distance on the McDonough Road was the rear of Howard's column, the gun barrels glistening in the sun, the white-topped wagons stretching away to the south, and right before us the 14th Corps marching steadily and rapidly, with a cheery look and swinging pace that made light of the thousand miles that lay between us and Richmond. Some band by accident struck up the anthem of John Brown's soul goes marching on. The men caught up the strain, and never before or since have I heard the chorus of glory, glory, hallelujah, done with more spirit or in better harmony of time and place. I like that image of the gun barrels glistening in the sun, the white wagon tops, and the men cheerily marching as they sing John Brown's soul goes marching on. In his memoirs, Sherman also transcribed messages he sent during the conflict. Here's one that Sherman sent to William J. Hardy, his counterpart on the Confederate side, about what lay in wait for Savannah. Quote, I have already received guns that can cast heavy and destructive shot as far as the heart of your city. Also, I have for some days held and controlled every avenue by which the people and garrison of Savannah can be supplied, and I am therefore justified in demanding the surrender of the city of Savannah and its dependent forts, and shall wait a reasonable time for your answer before opening with heavy ordnance. Should you entertain the proposition, I am prepared to grant liberal terms to the inhabitants and garrison, but should I be forced to resort to assault or the slower and surer process of starvation, I shall then feel justified in resorting to the harshest measures, and shall make little effort to restrain my army, burning to avenge the national wrong which they attach to Savannah and other large cities which have been so prominent in dragging our country into civil war. Unquote. Sherman wrote the following to Henry Halleck, General-in-Chief of the Union Armies, quote, We are not only fighting armies, but a hostile people, and must make old and young, rich and poor, feel the hard hand of war, as well as their organized armies. I know that this recent movement of mine through Georgia has had a wonderful effect in this respect. Thousands who had been deceived by their lying papers into the belief that we were being whipped all the time realize the truth and have no appetite for a repetition of the same experience. End quote. In the end, the march to the sea devastated Georgia and utterly demoralized the Confederacy. Sherman estimated that he cost the South about $100 million, which is about $1.4 billion in present-day dollars, in destruction, about one-fifth of which, quote, inured to our advantage, while, quote, the remainder is simple waste and destruction. His army wrecked almost 500 kilometers of railroad and numerous bridges, twisting rails around trees so they could never be used again. These were known as Sherman's neckties. His force also seized 5,000 horses, 4,000 mules, and 13,000 head of cattle. It confiscated 9.5 million pounds of corn and 10.5 million pounds of fodder and destroyed uncounted cotton gins and mills. 
In short, Sherman's rampage broke the will of the South to fight, which, if you were a Union man, was a good thing indeed, as it hastened the end of the war. So it could be said that Yehoshua's total war against Canaan guaranteed less widows and orphans on the Jewish side had he pursued a different strategy. In the end, I guess that if there is one thing better than ending a war quickly, it is never starting one in the first place. However, considering who's in charge these days and their arrogance, the latter is a much harder option to pursue. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show page on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section of thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find TanakhCast. And I thank you in advance for that. And I encourage you to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 54 when we continue with the book of Joshua, chapters 12 through 15. <laughs>